the book of Jeremiah chapter 39 through chapter 41. Jeremiah 39 through chapter 41. We're covering three chapters this morning as we continue to work our way through the book of Jeremiah. And we have probably three or four messages left in Jeremiah before we close this book and start a new series. Um, a uh, couple heads up, we're going to, over the next couple weeks, finish Jeremiah. We're going to look at Psalm 2 next week. We're just going to take a short break and be in the Psalms for a week. Um, in, in October, we have... Uh, our elder Eric Hill, who's going to be preaching. Um, what are you preaching on in October, Eric? John 6. And then after him, the week after him, will be a, a guest preacher named Jonathan Lehman will be with us. Looking forward to that. So we've got some, uh, some good stuff coming up. And then we'll be getting into a Christmas series uh, at some point in mid-November. Um, I uh, had the opportunity over the weekend to speak to a bunch of youth on the topic of depression, and, uh, and Kenny went with me, and, and uh, uh, poor, poor Kenny, this will be uh, sermon number four for him uh, this, this weekend, um, but it was a, it was a good, time, good, uh, good time with a bunch of churches down in southern Maryland uh, and with their youth really thinking through this topic of depression. But it's good to be here and back, of course, with my church family. And by the way, when I speak out often, uh, you know, people aren't quite as responsive. And so, now that I'm back here at the garden, feel free to talk to me while I preach. Respond. If the, I mean, if the Lord moves in you... Don't hold back, right? I mean, not quite like that, Jacob. I mean, if the Lord's not moving, He's not moving. <laughs> but let's get into Jeremiah 39 through 41. Uh, now, I can't read all three chapters just for the sake of time. I would have no time to preach it. So what I want to do is read a couple highlights, and I'm going to really just tell you the story of what happens in these three narrative chapters. But let's read a little bit here, start, starting in verse 1 of chapter 39. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, a breach was made in the city. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and sat in the middle gate, Nergel Sar Ezer of Samgar, Nagar Sar Sikim, the Rabsaris, work with me here, <laughs> Nergel Sar Ezer, the uh, Rabmag, with all of the rest of the officers of the king of Babylon, when Zedekiah king of Judah. And all the soldiers saw them. They fled going out of the city by way of the king's garden at night through the gate between the two walls. And when they went toward the Arabah, or I'm sorry, and they went toward the Arabah. 
But the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah, in the land of Hamath. And he passed sentence on him. And the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes. And the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. And then he put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. Let's skip down to verse 14 and look at what happens with Jeremiah. They sent and took Jeremiah from the court of the guard. They entrusted him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, that he should take him home. And so he lived among the people. Skip down to verse 16. What about this Ebed-Melech character from last week? Go and say to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will fulfill my words against the city for harm and not for good. And they shall be accomplished before you on that day, but I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord, and you shall be given into the hand of you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid. For I will surely save you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war, because you have put your trust in me, declares the Lord. Father, we ask that as we come into these three chapters of Jeremiah, and we explore the fall of Jerusalem, that we will be humbled in our own spiritual lives, that we will see that your word is true, and that the wages of sin is indeed death. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We live in a world of problems. We live in a world often filled with chaos. As we prayed this morning during the funeral, the burial of a young man who was killed in Baltimore this past week in that very graveyard, there was another shooting and his brother was killed and a friend. It's just yet again another reminder that our world has failed us. The world is broken. The world is chaotic. I saw on the news maybe a week, two weeks ago, a 16-year-old had hung themselves in front of their school or in front of a school in Salisbury, Maryland. The world is broken. The world is fallen. We look at injustice in the world, racism, despair, poverty. Those who have power, those who have positions, some landlords, some governors, some mayors who take advantage of those that depend on them. Now, some people, many people probably, have this sort of response to that sort of stuff, the suffering of the world, and then also the idea of God in the world, and they would say, well, if God is true, why doesn't He just invade and take care of all of the problems in the world? Well, C.S. Lewis, many years ago, answered that question 
And this is what he said. I'm going to read to you a paragraph of C.S. Lewis's writings here. He says this to that question, God will invade, but I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when he does. When that happens, it is the end of the world. When the author walks on the stage, the play is over. Oh, God is going to invade all right. But what is the good of saying you are on his side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something it never entered your head to conceive, comes crashing in, something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will either strike irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There is no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen, whether we realized it before or not. I want to talk to you this morning on this theme, the wages of sin is death. It's easy to ignore God's word right now. It's easy to, uh, to, to, to be, in, be in a, a church and, and hear his word and just, as soon as the preacher starts preaching, zone out and fall asleep. Which, by the way, I'm going to talk about sleeping in church today, so just a fair warning, all right? If you're like, man, what is he talking about me? No, I'm giving you a warning, a heads up, all right? I don't know who's going to fall asleep this morning, but I'm going to talk about it later on. <laughs> when God's Word is explained and opened up, do you perk up and listen? Do we hear it? It's easy to ignore it and say, oh, this doesn't apply to me right now. I'll deal with this later. It's easy to say, eh, that's not really, what I'm seeing in the Bible isn't really what I see in the world, and so it might be true, it might not be true. I'll find out later. I guess I'll find out in the end. That's when I'll find out. As if when the end comes, we'll have the opportunity to choose the right side. This is what Lewis is getting at here. What Lewis is getting at is, is simply this. When proof comes... It's too late. I need proof. I need something more than just faith. I need proof that this stuff is true. Listen, I'm telling you, friends, when proof comes, it will be too late to choose. Your choice will have been made. And when proof comes, it will just be clear what choice you made. What we see here in the Bible are pictures, true events, 
that serve us today. What we see here in these three chapters is what's called the fall of Jerusalem. And when we talk about this today and we walk through this narrative together today, I want you to realize that these are given to us as pictures to show us that the wages of sin is death. And that for those who rejected the Word of God and they said, I don't know, I guess I'll find out if Babylon actually comes. When that day came, it was too late. When proof came, there was no time to make a decision. The year is 587 B.C. If you want to memorize any date, everybody say 587. That's a good date to remember. That's the fall of Jerusalem. It's very important to the biblical storyline. The year is 587 and Babylon has finally come. In chapter 39, it opens up and the officials of Babylon, along with the great king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the feared Nebuchadnezzar, he has entered into Jerusalem. Be there for a moment. Imagine what that would have felt like. You you go to the middle gate of the city and you see, oh, that, is that Nebuchadnezzar? And he's sitting there with his officials. A breach has been made in the city and they are here. They've arrived. Now King Zedekiah, do you guys remember King Zedekiah last week? If you were here? And Ebed-Melech, remember we compared and contract. Well, they come back today. So King Zedekiah who was this weak sort of king and just went with every flow of culture and, and yeah, we can kill Jeremiah. No, nah, well, yeah, we can save Jeremiah. Whatever. Well, King Zedekiah, he finally sees. Proof has come. And he sees Nebuchadnezzar sitting there at the middle gate and he freaks out. As soon as night falls, he escapes the city through a secret passageway, he and his officials. The Babylonians course catch wind of this and they chase them down and Nebuchadnezzar and his officials are caught in the plains of Jericho. There in the plains of Jericho, Nebuchadnezzar's officials are slaughtered. His sons who are with him in front of Nebuchadnezzar's eyes are slaughtered. And then what happens is the king takes out Nebuchadnezzar's eyes. To sear this image on his mind, the last things his eyes ever saw were his sons being killed. He is bound in chains and he is taken to Babylon and that is the fate of King Zedekiah. There's sort of this in chapter 39, this compare and contrast before the story goes on. What about the others? What about Jeremiah himself? Well, Jeremiah is spared. And there's actually this sort of ironic uh, thing that happens in chapter 40, verses 1 through 12. The king's commander, (coughs) excuse me, comes to Jeremiah. And the king's commander says, Yahweh has done this. Because your people sinned sinned against him. I I would love to have seen Jeremiah's face in that moment. Like, yeah, that's what I've been saying for 40 years. 
And the commander of Babylon gets it and believes it. Jeremiah is spared. He's given to get alive, which is a godly man, to watch over him. Now, what about Ebed Malek? Remember Ebed Malek? From southern Sudan. My mic's going in and out again. I'm going to grab this guy before we get too deep into the message. Check one, two. Remember Ebed Malek? The man from southern Sudan who has been brought to Israel as a slave, forced to work in the king's labor. And what does he do? He believes the word of God. And when he sees Jeremiah in a pit, he goes to save Jeremiah. Ebed-Melech is the hero in Jeremiah's life who gets him out of the pit and literally saves his life. Well, what happens to Ebed-Melech? I love it uh, in Uh, these verses here. Look at verse 18, uh, for example. For surely I will save you, and you will not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war. These are the same words, very similar words at least, that God says to Jeremiah in chapter 1. Now applied to Ebed-Melech. Ebed-Melech's life is spared. He is not under the judgment of God. He is experiencing grace in this moment. Now, the vast majority of Jerusalem citizens at this time are led out of the city in chains. Back in the ancient days, they would take the wealthiest, they would take the middle class, they would take the working class, they would take everybody who they thought could contribute to society, and they were the ones who would be led out and led into the land of the empire, to Babylon. So the vast majority of the citizens are emptied out of Jerusalem, and there is left behind a poor remnant, people that the Babylonians probably thought could not contribute to society. They're left in Jerusalem. Now, again, there's sort of this irony that goes on with this poor remnant. Um, uh, I told you the, uh, the captain of the Babylonian guard, he recognized Yahweh. He also does something for the poor that Israel should have always done. He gives the poor their vineyards, their land, the year of Jubilee, which was never recognized. He gives them uh, uh, lands to farm and to take care of. And for a season, the poor enjoy the wine and the fruit of the land. He appoints Gedaliah, who Jeremiah was given to, a godly man. He appoints Gedaliah to be the governor of Jerusalem. And there is this short season here in chapter 40 where they seem to just kind of enjoy life. They go through at least one harvest season and enjoy the fruit of their harvest. But the craziness is not yet over. Stay with me, all right? The craziness continues. There's a man named Johanan. Johanan is somewhat of an insider in the Babylonian armies. And Johanan comes to Gedaliah, the governor, who's keeping Jeremiah. 
And Johanan says, hey, there is this dude named Ishmael who is an assassin. He has snuck his way in. He's here. He's been sent from another people group called the Ammonites, and he is here to kill you. Now, Governor Ger- uh, Gedaliah, he's like, I can't believe that. Maybe he's already spoke with Ishmael. Maybe he likes him. No, 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 no. I'm not going to, I won't believe that. That's not true. That can't be true. That's a lie. Well, it is true. And as the story goes on, Ishmael slaughters Governor Gedaliah. And not just him, but he slaughters the entire uh, group of officials surrounding Gedaliah. And not just them, but about 80 people come mourning the fall of Jerusalem. These are probably worshipers of Yahweh. They come from the wilderness. And, and, and they show up here at Jerusalem, and he tricks them. Ishmael acts like uh, everything's fine, and he invites them into the city only to slaughter them and throw them in a pit. After that, he takes this poor remnant that has enjoyed one season in Jerusalem. He leads them out as captives to take them down to the Ammonites. Never again will people inhabit Jerusalem until the return of the captives in Babylon. To be continued. We'll get to that later. Back to this story. The remnant now is out with Ishmael. Johanan, who's the insider, catches wind of this. He gets his little crew together, his militia, and he tracks down Ishmael and he finds them. They go to war. He's able to rescue the remnant from Ishmael, and Ishmael escapes with his eight officials, and they run down to the Ammonites. Chapter 41 closes with the majority of Israel in Babylon, the king and his crew slaughtered, the poor remnant now out in the wilderness, lost, confused, dazed, not knowing what to do, and they determined to head down to Egypt for help, and Jerusalem is decimated. That's our text for today. What do we learn from this story? Here's what we learn from this story. I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. None can escape God. Therefore, let us trust him. None can escape God. Therefore, let us trust him. Let's just break that down and talk about that a little bit. None can escape God. Let's start there. None can escape his justice. A friend of mine sat on a trial for a BGF member, one of our local gangs. And the state could not bring proof that this BGF member had uh, committed the crimes and the murders that they were claiming that this member had committed. Now, it's very likely that my friend thought that he did it, but there was no evidence, there was no proof. 
and as a result, he walked free. Only then to make a video of himself mocking the jury and bragging about the murders he'd committed, and then he goes and kills somebody else. True story. Listen, sometimes our, ju our justice system lets bad dudes go. Right? Sometimes our criminal justice system fails. What, what I'm telling you is God has a justice system that doesn't ever fail. Like, you're not going to slide through it. You're not going to hide the evidence. You're not going to get rid of it. There isn't even a jury. There's a judge. And this judge doesn't need to look at the evidence. This judge sees all things. And he watched you do it. And he saw you reject his word. He saw you follow the way of the world into sin and reject what he had offered. None can escape this justice system because he is God. Well, look at the text as we think of this story. We ask ourselves, who is not spared? The answer, none. Nobody is spared. Nobody gets off the hook. I, I, I think of this story here, and even as we've read some and talked through it, I see a couple categories of people, all of whom receive judgment. There are, number one, the uninterested. This would be the masses of Israel. They just don't care. They've heard the word of God, but it doesn't really seem to apply to them. They've heard the word of God, and they don't like it. They've said, oh, you're hurting us when you give us this. They've rejected Jeremiah. They've sought to kill Jeremiah. They put Jeremiah in prison. They put him in the dungeon. They tried to lynch him. They took his book that he wrote, and they burned it, and they mocked him. These are the people who just are uninterested in the word of God. They finally threw him in a pit to try to kill him. They're uninterested. This doesn't apply to me. I reject what you're saying. Listen, when the curtain dropped, it was clear. There was no time to change their mind. There was, when proof came for them, it was too late. The uninterested, not spared. Also, the interested. We're not spared. Meaning it's possible for you to have an interest in Scripture, but not love God. It's possible for you to fear God in one sense, but to not fear God. You, you understand what I'm saying there? The king, Zedekiah, is the example of that. Oh, he was interested in what God had to say. He, he went to Jeremiah. He's like, come on, tell me, is there any word from the Lord? Why? Because he was concerned for himself. He wasn't concerned to love God. He was just afraid that this stuff might actually be true. Oh, he was interested in the word of God. He would probably read his book. He would listen to it. He would talk with Jeremiah. But he hated God. Look, just because you have an interest in the scriptures doesn't mean you love God. Just because you like to read theology and you've been through big books of theology and you can talk all about what God says. That doesn't mean that you love God. 
Just because you are afraid of God doesn't mean that you fear God. The interested are not spared. Another category that I find interesting is the poor. They're not spared. You know, for a minute there, as I was reading this story and as I was telling it to you, there's a sense in which we think, oh, wow, the poor made it out. Like uh, Jeremiah was saying that judgment is going to come on all people, everybody, from the least to the greatest, from the poorest to the wealthiest. And at first it seems like, wow, the poor actually made it out. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking, like, I wouldn't mind actually hanging with these guys. Like, they've got the whole city to themselves now. They've got all these vineyards. They're probably drinking a lot of wine and hanging out, right? They were spared. No, they weren't. No, they weren't. This Ishmael dude comes and the judgment continues and they're taken out. And we're going to see next week death on the Nile. Listen, just because you have it tough in this world doesn't mean that God owes you anything in the next. Don't just think simply because we've been taken advantage of here. Don't just think simply because that you've been a victim here. Don't just think that simply because we don't have anything here, we don't have two nickels to rub together, we can't pay our bills here. Don't think that that means that God owes you something in the next life. Family, listen, this might be the best you ever get. When the curtain falls, nobody is spared. Why? Well, it's because the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 the wages of sin is death. Now, somebody here is probably thinking, I don't like the way Joel's preaching today. I don't like this. I didn't sign up for a hellfire and brimstone church. I don't care that you don't like it. It's true. <laughs> Listen, I can't stop preaching like this. Because someone in here might be lost and you think you're found. You think you're saved and you're not. And listen, if that day comes and you are under the, God, the judgment of God and you are in hell, I don't want to be able to say I never was clear enough. Listen, it's grace, though. God's warnings, this, is, this isn't judgmentalism. God's warnings are grace to us. <laughs> like the hound of heaven, he's coming for everybody. But what we discover in God's grace is that he's actually for your good. He's coming so that you might know him, so that you might love him, so that he, his love will be known for you. I heard this story of a carpet cleaner who specializes in pet urine. And this carpet cleaner came to somebody's house and they have this specific way of selling their services. 
they shut off all the lights of the house and they have these powerful black lights. And the black lights show all of the urine crystals around the room. Every drop and dribble. And so in this one house in particular, the lights came on and there was urine crystals on the walls, on the drapes, of course, on the carpet, all over the furniture, and even on the lampshades. How in the world did we get on the lampshades? It was horrifying for the homeowner. And the homeowner finally said to the carpet cleaner, shut it off. I can't look at it anymore. I don't want to see it. Turn it off. I don't care how much it costs. Clean it up. Listen, there are some things that are invisible. There, are, there is some really gross stuff in our life that is otherwise invisible unless the right kind of light comes on. Now, on one hand, you might say, oh, that's, that's wrong for that person to turn on this black light and show all of the mess around the house. Well, is it? Maybe once the house is clean, you might say, oh, what a grace that was to have that light, to know that I was living in this kind of filth. When we come into passages like the fall of Jerusalem, listen, and we, 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 we recognize that the word of God is true, and this is just a picture of the fact that the word of God is true, and the wages of sin is death, and this is the reality for all who are outside of Jesus Christ. On one hand, it, we, we, we flinch and we say, oh, I don't want to see that. But listen, only a cruel person would show this to you and then walk away. It would be cruel to turn on this light and, and you see the filth and then they shut off the light and they say, okay, sayonara, and they walk away. And you're left with the filth. Listen, when God turns on the lights and he begins to expose the sin in your life that is leading you to hell. It is God's grace. Why? Because he's not going to just leave after that, but he offers, I don't want to be silly, but a cleaning solution. He comes along with something. He shows you this is what you do. This is how you deal with your sin. The wages of sin is death. The verse goes on, doesn't it? Can somebody finish it for me? But the gift, let's say it together, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We are not given just simply images of horror in the Bible. We are given hope. We don't just simply see the wages of sin. Oh, yeah, we see it. This is why we're here this morning. This is why we're in this passage. We're looking at it, and I want us to know how deep this horror is. But we're not left with the wages of sin. We've got the gift of God. And that gift is eternal life. Through whom? Through Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, I said earlier, none can escape God. The second part of my, my, my propositional statement was this. Therefore, let us trust him. 
Therefore, let us trust him. When we see these stories, the fall of Jerusalem, let's back up to similar stories. The flood. Sodom and Gomorrah. The fall of Jericho. The conquering of the Canaanites. What we see clearly here is the wages of sin is death. But we also see that the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Because when God's judgment comes, each time there is this remnant that is spared. I said there, there was nobody that was spared. That's not exactly accurate. There were some. When the flood came, you've got Noah and his family in the safety of the ark. When Sodom and Gomorrah is judged, you've got Lot who's uh, uh, got Abraham praying for him and on his side and he's trusting in the Lord and, he is, and his family are spared. When we see the Canaanites falling and Jericho, the great city of Jericho falls, we've got Rahab. The prostitute who had uh, saved the spies and because she's trusting in the Lord, she, Rahab, is spared. Who is it that's spared here in this text? Well, we see Jeremiah, he's spared. And that's sort of a given, right? We would expect that, but I think Jeremiah was quite happy on that day, I would imagine, knowing that he was spared. We also see Ebed-Melech, he's spared. I love, I think Ebed-Melech is my new favorite character in the Bible. This dude brought from southern Sudan, he's here in, uh, in, in Jerusalem, he's serving, he puts his neck on the line, and he saves the prophet of God in a wonderful, beautiful, caring, and loving, and bold, and courageous way. And he is spared. He belongs on that Hebrews chapter 11 hall of faith. By faith, Rahab saved the prophets. By faith, Ebed-Malek saved the prophet. Right? What a great man of faith he was. And now listen, this is what's interesting is this. He wasn't saved because of his works. It's not that he did something good and that uh, gave him some kind of credibility in the eyes of God and so God went ahead and spared his life. And you say, well, Joel, wait a second. How do you know that? Yeah, thank you. How do you, know, how do you know that? How do you know that uh, he wasn't saved by his works. How do you know that he didn't just simply, you know, write, heart, write good guy, good heart, and he just did the right thing, and it was because of his action, because of his work, that God saved him and spared him? Well, it's in the text. Look at verse 18. As God is giving this promise to Ebed-Melech, saying, I'm going to spare you, look at it. He says, I'm, surely I'm going to save you. You're not going to fall by the sword. You're going to have your life as a prize for war. Why? Because, why? You saved Jeremiah out of the pit. Is that what it says? No. He says, because you have put your trust in me. Ebed-Melech was saved by grace through faith. 
He was saved because he trusted Yahweh. Because he put his faith into Yahweh. And for that reason, God spared Ebed, Malak. Listen, when you hear the word of God, it should move you to action. When you hear the word of God, you should not only believe it, but there should be something in us that says, yes, this is true, this is for me, and I'm, my action is this, I'm trusting in the Lord. The problem with the people who are judged is they heard the word of God and they ignored it. It bored them. They hated it. They despised it. The difference was Ebed-Melech heard the word of God and he believed it and it moved him to action and his action was a sign that he had faith, that he was trusting in Yahweh. Listen, when the Holy Spirit moves in your life and confirms the word of God in your life, things change. And the things that stimulate your brain, it, it changes. Things that used to excite you and stimulate your mind don't quite do it for you anymore. And what does is something that you used to find boring, and that's the Word of God. If I could just use myself as, as a, an example, part of my testimony is I loved watching movies. I could watch movies for hours when I was younger. Hours. And you know what I hated to do? Sit in church, listen to sermons. I found that to be the most boring thing. Here's the crazy thing, I, and this is not boasting on myself. I'm boasting in the Lord right now because it's only the Lord that has done this in me. I love listening to sermons. Like, I can listen to people preach and open the Word of God all day long, and I'm like this. I never fall asleep when I listen to a sermon. And I try to watch a movie, and within 15 minutes, I'm sleeping. <laughs> And you say, well, Joel, that's just because you're getting older. No, it's not, because some of you are twice my age. <laughs> Tracking with me? Listen, no, I'm joking a little bit, but I, I am concerned. It concerns me when you're able to binge watch TV and you fall asleep as soon as the sermon starts. That's concerning. It's concerning when we can't hear God's word preached and stay alert. Listen, when you're in love, you can't sleep. When, when you are being enticed towards something beautiful and you're thinking about it, your, your brain, like whatever it is that causes us to go to sleep, is, we're stimulated. When you're worshiping God, you can't sleep. Like, it's active. I want to give myself. I want to, it's a sacrifice. It's giving. It's, it's honoring him. It's beautiful. It's right. Listen, when you believe a warning is true, it keeps you up. How many of you right now, if I were to say, in five minutes, this roof is going to fall in and there's only one way out and it's through that back door, this is what we need to do is move over to this side. Everybody be like, huh, what's going on? Like, uh, like man, well, I was just snoozing, but I, there's a warning and I'm believing that warning and, uh, and it woke me up. 
You see what I'm saying? Like if you believe this, it's going to stimulate our brains. Listen, if, if you believe that this is your hope, that keeps you up. When you found something good and right and strong, a foundation upon which you can build your life. Wake up, the scripture says, O sleeper. Rise from the dead and let Christ shine upon you. What is our great hope as we examine the fall of Jerusalem? Our hope is this. The Bible says Christ died according to the scriptures. So as we hear the word of God, and as the word of God incites us and wakes us up, and we are aware of the fact that the fall is real and judgment is coming, and we've seen a picture of it, what is the escape? What is the way out? How can we be spared? Well, here it is. Christ died according to the scriptures. Meaning, in the way that you saw sinners die in the scriptures, Christ died according to the scriptures. Our hope is that Jesus Christ lived for us. Jesus Christ died for us. This kind of judgment that is merely pictured here, we, we get a taste of it here. The reality of that, that I deserve, was put on to Jesus. And he paid it all for me. He paid it all for those who trust in him. He paid it all for you. As you hear this word, as you receive this word, this is a promise for you that this judgment has been paid. That we can be spared on that last day because of Jesus Christ. Our call is what? Is our call to do some good works? Is our call to go to church every Sunday? Is our call to uh, wake up in the morning and read our Bible and be a good Christian? Well, those things are good, but that stuff doesn't save you. That stuff doesn't earn you some kind of safety when it all comes. What is our hope? Our hope is this. Christ died according to the scriptures. We are called to trust in him. In the same way that ebed Malek trusted in God, we just know more now about who God is. And we trust in God in the same way. And we are saved in the same way through hearing the word of God, through being woken up as we hear that. And we trust the words that we hear. That's for me. Yes, amen. I read a story of a monastery in Portugal. This monastery has a, or it's built on a 3,000 foot cliff. And there is uh, only one way to the monastery, and that is through a rope that is dangling and a basket at the bottom of the rope. And so you sit in this basket at the bottom of the rope and strong men at the top of the 3,000-foot cliff pull you up. So an American tourist was there in Portugal visiting this monastery and was going to go for the ride up the side of the cliff. 
And he gets in the basket and he looks at the rope and he notices the rope is quite frayed. So he asks this question, how often do you guys change the rope? The answer came, whenever it breaks. Pull them up. Listen, I wonder if you are clinging to a rope that's about to break. I wonder if you are putting your hope in something that is not sure. I wonder if you're basing all of your livelihood, you're putting all the eggs in that one basket, and you're saying, man, I hope this rope holds me. Um, Let me give you two ropes that you can cling to. One is the rope of the world. What the world offers you, the promises of the world, the sins of the world, you can put your eggs into that basket if you want. You can jump in that basket if you want. I'm telling you, though, that rope has proven to be chaotic. It's proven to be broken. It's proven to be a part of this fallen condition in which we find ourselves personally. Or you can put your hope in the Word. The Word of God, which has not proven to be chaotic. On the other hand, the Word of God testifies to itself that it is true. And the events which have taken place throughout biblical history testify to the fact that the Word of God is true. Listen, the fall of Jerusalem is given to us so that we might know the Word is true. We see these events like the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, Jericho. These are historical events that testify to the fact that God's word is true. We can go on into the New Testament and we can see the life of Jesus Christ. Oh, all of the prophecies that he fulfilled. The way that the whole Bible fits together in this man, this historical man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And this testifies for us to the fact that the Word of God is true. We can go on and we can see the resurrection of Christ, this historical event that took place. There's evidence that there were people who saw Him risen from the dead. And this is all given to us so that we might know that the Word of God is true. You see what I'm saying right now? We've been given a hope that is sure. We've been given a sure foundation, a true foundation that will not ever fail you. Amen? Is anybody with me? Listen, the curtain is going to drop one day. God will invade. And that day is not going to be the day that we decide which place we are on. The floor is about to drop and we're going to hang on to something. And when the floor drops, that is not the time that we determine what we're going to be hanging on to. When the floor drops, our choice is made clear. Are you hanging on to the rope of the world, or are you hanging on to the rope of the word? Do you have something that is secure in your life? Are you clinging to Jesus Christ? Listen, I'm telling you, no other rope is secure. 
There is nothing in this world that will last outside of Jesus Christ and the faith that we have. His word remains forever. When your sin fails you, Jesus remains. When, when people abandon you, when people turn their backs on you, Jesus remains. When the things that you dream about don't come true, Jesus remains. When you lose your job and you're struggling, Jesus remains. When you are broke in this world, Jesus remains. When you're rich in this world, Jesus remains. When those riches fade in this world, Jesus remains. When those you love pass away, Jesus remains. When, when the things that you've been trying to acquire and attain in life to give you some uh, uh, sense of credibility in the eyes of others, when these things are gone, Jesus remains. Listen, when your uh, Instagram and your Facebook and all of the things that you uh, put out there on social media to give yourself a sense of identity, when, that, when all of those things are gone and Instagram is no more and Facebook is no more, Jesus remains. When, when the degrees that you've earned from high school, from college, the certifications that you have, when they're all burned up, Jesus remains. Are you tracking with me? Listen, we've got a sure foundation in Christ. We hope in nothing else other than Christ. Oh, family, let's not be like these people who rejected his word. Let's not be like this king who put his hope in other things. Let's be like those of old who trusted in Christ. What a Savior He is. What a, what a great Savior He is that He would come to those of us who deserve judgment and die for us and take our judgment on Himself. What a God He is that He should love those of us condemned to death and give us life. As one poem calls him, he is the hound of heaven. And he sees all. Nothing escapes him. He will find all. And for those of us in him, when he finds you, what you discover is that he's here to help you. He's for your good. Cling to Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask, Lord, that you would awaken the coldest soul in the room, that you would warm us up. As we have heard your word, I pray that you would apply this to our life. I pray that we would not just simply be hearers of the word, but that we would be doers of the word. That your word would indeed move us to action. 
and that action would be evidence of our faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.